Welcome to the Living the Dream Podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Hello and welcome to another episode of Living the Dream with Curveball. I am your host, Curveball, and today I am joined by a very special guest, who is doing a lot to give back to her community and to help those in needs. Rachel Longin, she is a psychotherapist. She is located in California. She has done things like create a blind support group. She has also created a parent support group to help parents to cope with everything that's going on and the social isolation with kids with special needs. She also works with kids with special needs. So she's just doing a whole lot to give back to her community. And we're going to talk about that today and how she got started. So Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Glad to have you. Why don't you start off by giving people a little bit of background about yourself? Okay. Um, Let's see where to start. So I live in Berkeley, California, and I have a private psychotherapy practice in which I mostly work with individuals, but also throughout my career, I have worked a lot with groups. And I've actually been thinking about that a bit today that that has been the thread pretty much throughout my working and my social life (laughs) is that I really love bringing people together. And I believe that you can really benefit from from peers as much as professionals. And so I I always look for opportunities to help people help each other. And I think that's probably one of the, the longest threads throughout my career is launching and founding lots of different groups to try and help people help each other. So speaking of those groups that you founded, let's talk about the blind support group, Mind's Eye. What made you found that? And just tell us what your group does and give us a little bit of insight into your philosophy on blindness. So I, my first introduction to a blind support group was actually when I was a participant. I have been blind for quite a long time now, but Sometimes blindness isn't just a sort of you either are or you aren't. It's at least for some people, it's a long um, process of ebb and flow and changes in vision. And so I first started becoming blind about 20 years ago and about 10 years ago started using a white cane. And I think it was at that point when I started using the white cane that it really kind of hit me that I couldn't really avoid thinking about anymore. And I really needed to deal with the emotional aspects of dealing with being blind and becoming blind. So I was at that time doing internships to acquire hours for my license as a marriage family therapist. And that process is rather long. You have to acquire about 3000 hours before you can sit for the license. And during that time, I thought that it would be 
fun and useful to other blind people to get together and help each other. So before I started that group, as I said, I was actually a participant in the very early stages of coping with my own journey of going blind. And it was so incredibly helpful for me to be in a room full of people who had struggles, but they weren't all related to blindness. And they were just regular people being, yeah, being okay with their blindness. And it was just extremely helpful for me to be in the presence of other people who were just a, a bit further along in the road of dealing with blindness. And so then after I had kind of spent some time working on myself and coming to terms with it, I felt like I was in a place where I could help other people. And so I approached the Lighthouse for the Blind, a place that is in San Francisco who, that also provided some other services for me and asked them if I could start a group called the Mind's Eye, which is a, was a small support group for people at different stages of blindness, just helping each other through the process. Well, when you first went blind and you were going through your classes, did you face any kind of hardships as far as discrimination? Because I know you talk about how you want blind people to be included in the workforce and all aspects of life. What kind of resistance did you face and how did you cope with it going blind, trying to deal with all this and your schooling? Well, yes, I definitely was met with some challenges in my process of becoming licensed. I needed to sit for the license in 2015, I think it was, and the licensing board wouldn't allow me to use the accessibility program that I needed in order to see the print. So at that, at that point, I needed a lot of enlargement of the print and reversal of colors for various reasons for me to be able to even read it. And they wouldn't allow me to use it. And it was a really long, arduous, anger-inducing process of trying to get this board to let me just sit for the license. And I had to actually end up hiring a lawyer. I didn't actually have to hire them. It was a, an organization in Berkeley that provides lawyers to people for situations like this. So it's a nonprofit organization and they provided a lawyer for me. And as soon as I had a lawyer behind me, they let me use the software that I needed in order to see the exam. But that was the most blatant uh, discrimination that I've dealt with where an organization just said, no, you can't use what you need to use in order to pass the test. Um, I think I've been fortunate in general in other parts of my life that I've not faced a lot of discrimination. I think the biggest hurdle has actually been my own worries about asking for accommodation and about my own blindness. And the more confident I've gotten in my own abilities, the obviously the easier it has become. But definitely, I think I have been kind of my own enemy in this process sometimes of not not knowing how I was going to make it through and not having good self-confidence in the beginning. And that has, my confidence has definitely grown over the years as I have gained blind skills, which is also another concept I hadn't ever eat or even heard of before. And it's 
just such an inspiring concept that that you can get blind skills. That's actually one of the first things I learned in that support group when I was a participant was, oh, there's this set of skills that you can learn. And the better you become at being blind and learning those skills, the easier it is to be blind and the less of an impact your blindness will make on your life. It's definitely one of the things that I learned from being in that support group. Plus, people had a great sense of humor in that support group. They could laugh at themselves, which is so important, I think, in the process of sort of grieving this loss and coping with a, a very new way of having to live. So what's your philosophy and your driving force behind your mind's eye group? What is your mission statement and how do you help people cope? with their blindness? Um, one of the foundations is that you, you must take responsibility for learning the skills that you have to learn in order to make your way in the world. Um, sharing in a group like that, I'm not currently running the Mind's Eye group. It's a group that I was running a while ago. Um, but in that group, enabling people who are just a little bit further along in the path to help someone sort of lend a helping hand and say, okay, I've made it this far. I'm doing this little bit ahead of you. And I can tell you that um, once you get to this stage, you'll feel a little bit better. And so like any group, no matter what the topic is, the most empowering thing is witnessing other people with similar challenges, doing okay, making it, having a good attitude being willing to share what they're learning. And so, I mean, that was true in, that has been true in the groups that I've run for parents who have children with special needs, for young parents. I've run some groups for young parents who don't have any particular special needs, but just are kind of struggling with the early stages of parenting. So it's a sharing of a knowledge base, knowing that the information that you get doesn't always come from, quote, experts, but from just people who are a little further along in the path than you. And there's really nothing more inspiring and helpful than to see that where you've gotten can be helpful to someone else. You know, that you, that this little bit of stuff that you've learned can be helpful and inspiring to another person. And that helps you go to the next level of whatever you're working on. And like I was saying, it's, it's not, it isn't actually very specific to the particular challenge that you're working on. It has more to do with where you are developmentally in your process of learning about this challenge. Well, let's talk about your service with the AFB and how you got started with that particular organization and what you're doing with them to serve your community and help out? I applied to the AFB program a little over a year ago because I was at a point in my life where I'd had another decrease in my vision that made a pretty big functional difference in my life. So I went from using a cane to deciding that I wanted to get a guide dog. And also I went from being able to kind of muddle my way through looking at the computer with huge print to not being able to see the computer at all and needing to learn a new program called JAWS that 
that means you can navigate the computer completely through keystrokes. Um, and I was just saying to a, a friend the other day that I had, I had put my mouse away for the last time and realized that I would no longer be able to navigate the computer with the mouse, but I have learned this new program. So I applied to AFB Blind Leaders Program because I wanted to start this new chapter of less vision with something more positive. And I was pretty thrilled that I got in there. It's a national program and there were 15 people that were selected. We're called fellows, we're the fellows in the Blind Leaders Program. And they provided me with a mentor who's wonderful. Her name is Neva Fairchild. And they also provided some training um, on soft skills and networking. And the main point of the program was to help people who are early in their careers continue to uh, learn leadership skills and have leadership opportunities. And so I set goals with Neva at the beginning of the year. And one of the things that I decided to do after I started this program was I'm on the board at an organization called Camping Unlimited or Camp Krem. It's an organization that is a recreational and educational camping program and also sort of a um, field trip program for people who young children and young adults who have developmental delays. So I'm on their board and the pandemic hit and I kind of realized that, wow, this is going to be really tough for a lot of parents who have kids with special needs because this program provides respite, which is a term that if you have a child with special needs, you know what it means. But if you don't, it means basically a chance to not have to parent and get a little bit of a break from um, a pretty tough job that it can be to be a parent of a child with special needs. And I thought, wow, there's going to be no respite for these 900 families that this organization serves. We really need to do something else. And so I approached the board, the chairman of the board, and said, what do you think about providing support groups for these families? And I knew I couldn't just provide one support group because there's a lot of families. And so I offered to reach out to all the families and ask if anybody wanted support. And many people said they did. And then I asked of those people, I asked if any of them were interested in leading a group. So I trained a handful of parents on how to run a support group and then connected them with a handful of parents who wanted the support. So that was something that I did at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was a really neat experience. It was really fun to train the parents in this and also just feel like I, it's nice to empower other parents to help parents. Like I was saying, you know, being in support group, it, it kind of goes both ways. The person who's supporting can really gain, and then the people who are getting supported can gain a lot from it. Rachel, let's talk about the things that you do with kids with special needs, because I have a son that has autism. So talk about how you got started in that and everything that you're doing with that. So my first introduction to this is that I have a child with special needs. I have a, well, he's not a child anymore. He's, he's a young adult. Um, so I have a young adult uh, child who has an intellectual disability. And my first 
introduction to sort of programming around it was that he and I joined a support group and a program at the downtown Berkeley YMCA that was for families with special needs in which they provided a parent support group, but then they also provided a gym program and a swimming program for the youngsters. And at that time, he was like four. It was a long time ago. And after being in that program for about six months, they asked me if I would would run the support group. And eventually, I became the director of the program. And this is a was a grant funded program that ran for a decade, actually, in in Berkeley. And it was a really wonderful experience for me as a director. For one thing, I had a, an amazing boss who gave me a lot of freedom um, to add to the program. And she just was just a really supportive supervisor. And people loved the program. It was free because it was grant funded. And it was of such a diverse group of parents. It was really neat. At one point, we had like 15 parents in there. And we had like four different languages, one person who was deaf. So the, the support group was being translated into different languages. And um, there was sign language. And so the parents, we had very little in common with each other, except that they were parenting a child with special needs. And it was really wonderful to see how they came together and supported each other um, around this one challenge that they had, which was a major challenge. It's quite huge to end up having a child with special needs. Um, it depends on how impaired they are, but Oftentimes before you have a child, you have these dreams of what they're going to be like, you know, and you have your own little agenda of, of what it's going to be like to be a parent. And then to be surprised by a child who is really going to be taking a very different path is it's a process. There's a little bit of grieving and there's a lot of adjustments. So that's kind of some of the stuff that we talked about in the, in the support group, besides just sharing resources in the community. Well, let's talk about scripting. I know my son does a lot of scripting. He kind of scripts out or acts out things that may or might not be going on in school or mm -hmm. around him in his life. Did your son do that? And if so, how did you make it through? And when did he kind of start kind of flattening out and getting through the difficult times? Because sometimes it's real difficult. My son's eight right now. So how did you get through uh -huh. that if you had to deal with it? Uh-huh. So I can you clarify what you mean by scripting? Well, basically what his teacher said is, for example, he's in a class for special needs and he gets out in general ed sometimes. So uh -huh. he'll talk about everybody else in the house will be quiet and he'll be going 90 miles an hour talking about what's going on at school or maybe his thoughts or what's in his head, like if. Mm -hmm. He has a friend named Jacob and he'll be and he'll say, Jacob, stop doing what you're doing. You need to pay attention. We're trying to read or we're getting ready to go to recess. You know, he just kind of talks out. Whatever so it's like a replay on. kind of. Right. Like, uh-huh. Yeah. And yeah. so I was wondering if you experienced that with your child and, and how did you uh, get through that? Yeah, it's, it's it can be really tough. I think one of the toughest things about having a child with autism um, is 
the attachment between the parent and the child is really different. And so they kind of can sometimes, some people with autism can kind of seem like they're in their own world and it's hard to reach them because they're, they've got their own little tape that's playing and they're kind of doing their own thing and they appear to not have as much of a need for um, interaction with the people around them. And I think autism is an enormous umbrella now. And so there's a pretty wide range of different ways that people experience autism. But that is one of the threads for sure is that they are sort of in their own world. And I think there's sort of a balance sometimes that you have to walk between insisting that the child join you and come, in, come into your world and interact with you and the other half of that is letting them be in their own world because it might be soothing for them to be having their own little conversations with themselves and not having interruptions from people who are expecting things of, of them. So I think that's just like, like many things, it's, it's a balance of like, how much do you push them? Do you always feel like, you don't, I've heard adults with autism say that they really felt like they that people made them feel like they were never right. And it was, it was very difficult for them because they were just trying to do their own thing and didn't feel accepted. Um, so that's one thought I have about that. Um, and there was another thought I had about just interacting. Oh, I was gonna say to you that one thing that's really interesting that happened in our family is that my son renamed himself. And he actually renamed himself around the same age that your son is. I think he was, I think he was around eight. And I think it partly had to do with this fact of he didn't want to be that, that person anymore. He kind of wanted to create a new person. Like there were, I'm not sure how to explain it, but he insisted on it. I mean, literally every day for a while, he went through this phase of like, he was a different person. Every week we had to call him something else. And it was really awkward. And I can never keep track of what his name was. And then when he got into middle school, we were all just like, look, you got to choose some name. And he finally chose his name. And he's been that name ever since then. And actually he has legally changed his name. That's how strongly he felt about it. But I think it was a little bit of, we didn't really understand him for the first eight years. And I think he felt kind of misunderstood. And this was his way of just being like, look, I'm this name. I'm Eric. You guys all need to call me Eric. And this is who I am. And he kind of got the name from a Disney film. <laughs> um, but he was like trying to be like, okay, I'm not that person anymore. I'm this person. And I want to have control over how you perceive me. That's a bit of a tangent, but that's, that's a thought I have about it, about parenting. That's very helpful. What kind of resources would you direct people to that are going through difficult, difficulty, parents, kids with special needs? What, what kind of resources would you give them? I think what helped me the most was finding other parents. Parenting a child with special needs is a very unique experience, if you will. Use an overused word, but it's 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 hard to know what it's like if you're not walking that walk. And it was so helpful for me to meet with people 
who kind of got it, you know, whatever, even if their kid wasn't really that similar to mine, just got the whole concept of like, wow, this was a major change of plans. <laughs> and I get you, I get that you have some struggles that are really hard um, at home and out in the world. And so the biggest thing that I would encourage people to do is connect to other people, other parents who have special needs for support and to be there for them and to, to ask for help from other people who are experiencing similar challenges in parenting. And there's just so many resources that are very community specific. Um, and so in our community, there's certain school districts that are better than others. And there's certain nonprofit organizations that provide really good services. And there's navigating in California, it's called the regional center, which is very helpful, but also kind of daunting and perplexing to navigate. And so with regard to resources, I think other parents are probably the biggest resource that a parent could have, especially locally, because they'll have their finger on the pulse of what kind of resources locally are available to people. And then the last thing I want to say, and really stress this, is there's nothing like taking care of oneself, which really gets overlooked when you are making your way through parenting a child with special needs, or even just parenting a typical kid. You kind of can lose yourself and become sort of obsessed with like, what's the best place for them to get educated? What kind of, you know, ABA therapy should they have? And should I do the, the diet that is, you know, supposed to help people with autism? And it can just be, you can be pulled in so many directions. And I think especially for parents who have younger children, there's a constant feeling that you're not doing enough. There must be some magical cure, or there must be some resource that's going to be the thing that helps your kid deal with school. And then meanwhile, you're lost. Like you, you don't know who you are. You might, you might've even neglected your relationship with the co-parent, you know, with the, with your partner. And so I think it's really, really important to remember to get breaks from your kid, to ask for support, and don't forget your own personal routines that help you stay sane, you know, whatever it is, if it's eating chocolate or if it's running 10 miles or <laughs> if it's reading a book or cooking or whatever it is that you used to do before you had a kid to make yourself feel good. Don't forget those things because they're so vital once you embark on this journey. Are the services that you provide local to your area or are they nationwide virtual and how can people get in touch with your services and see what you do? So the service that I currently provide usually are for parents. So I'll work with parents on couple issues and parenting issues virtually. I do all of my therapy right now virtually um, because of the pandemic, but I am thinking that I may continue some of my practice virtually. And then we are continuing these support groups through Camp Creme. And people can definitely access that through my website. You can, you can reach me through my website, which is rachellongan.com, and contact me through that. And I, connect, I can connect people to those support groups that we're running. 
and that's L-O-N-G-A-N. Go ahead and give out your social media links as well and also other projects that you might work on. I know you're doing your therapies, but are you doing any kind of courses, any other things that people need to know about? So yeah, currently the main thing I'm doing is the, the private practice and this, this group work. I also do help people with advocating for educational opportunities. So I, I do some coaching also for parents who are trying to kind of help their kids make it through the school system unscathed and maybe even better off, which depending on where you live, can, it can be kind of difficult. Uh, let's see. So the, the way to reach me is, is my website. You can email me through that website or you can call me directly on my line at 415-462-4467. Do you have any final thoughts, final encouraging words for maybe the blind or any anybody that you work with under your umbrella? Give them some final thoughts and encouraging words. Okay. Yeah. I think the biggest thing people should try and keep in mind is to have a sense of humor, to reflect on what you are enjoying in your life. I've started this new thing in our family, which is met with some resistance, but sometimes they'll do it, which is called GLAD. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's G-L-A-D. So at the end of the evening, sometimes we will sit around together and we'll we'll do this exercise. G is gratitude. So talking about what you're grateful for. L is talking about what you've learned during the day. A is what you have achieved or accomplished. And D is what has delighted you. And if you think about those four things every day or every week, trying to kind of keep those things at the forefront of your mind, that will definitely help you through the day. And I think that's great, the GLAD method. Maybe everybody should start practicing that, ladies and gentlemen. It's been fun, yeah. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, Rachel Longin. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It was really nice to talk to you. Absolutely. And listeners, please be sure to follow, rate, review, and tell a friend after listening. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.